Friends, great to be here again. Let me just say a couple of things to start with. Um, thank you, everyone who was involved in the prayer and fasting week. We had a fantastic time, and I think we had about 140 people engaged for prayer and fasting across the week. And if that was you, well done, and uh, thank you for your efforts there. Um, so it's been a great time. I think we had twice as many people as last year, which is outstanding. And the second thing is, uh, where's Nathan? He's somewhere. Let's have a big applause for Nathan. He got ordained yesterday, and Nathan is now the Reverend Nathan Campbell. So congratulations to you, Nathan. We will be interviewing Nathan and Bill in the coming weeks so people get a chance to meet them properly. Now, let's pray. Father, we do thank you we can be here this morning, and I pray that you'd open our hearts to your word. Father, may what I say be pleasing to you and helpful to all who listen. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're two weeks in to a series called Imperfect Church, and it's an interesting title for a preaching series, Imperfect Church. I didn't come up with it, it's worth saying. One of the staff did uh, at our annual preaching planning meeting. We run that in August, and we look ahead to the year and what we're going to look at. And at first, I wasn't sure. Um, It doesn't sound a very sexy title. It's not very visionary, Imperfect Church. Um, And then I started to think about it, and I thought, I actually think it's a very helpful title to uh, put for the series. Because we live in a world which really seeks perfection. And I just want to put up a few things to show you some uh, current cultural things. I mean, who isn't after the perfect coffee? Someone down the back is not... Anyway, I pity you because I actually would prefer to have the perfect coffee. But uh, we love it, don't we? We want the perfect coffee. We hunt for our coffee shops. Um, This magazine has been on our breakfast table for a week. Now, we get the Sunday Herald delivered and the Saturday Herald... And Sunday Life is the magazine that comes today. It came last week. And I've had this picture staring at me all week. The magazine's just been sitting there as it does. And you can actually see some scrawling and some numbers put down. And I've had this, what you might say, perfect face staring at me. And there's no doubt that uh, we live in a world where physical perfection is really greatly esteemed. Now, this lady's name, and I have to laugh, is named Bambi. I mean, who names their child Bambi unless they think they're going to become a supermodel? Now, that's Bambi, and uh, you think about the impact of the way covers impact us, and I think particularly women, you think this is normal, that you look like this, and then you see them unmade up without Photoshop, and you realise, actually, that's not what they really look like. But yet there's this whole comparison as we seek perfection. Now, for the surfers out there, uh, there's even a wave company called The Perfect Wave, And they guarantee you, kind of, that they will take you to some exotic place in the planet, they're based up at Brookvale, to get the perfect wave. And if you're a surfer, that's what you're after. And so in this perfect world, we have a culture that celebrates perfection. And what we're doing is learning about being an imperfect church. And you think, what's with that? Well, I think as you start scratching deeper in life, most people realise that Actually, life isn't perfect. In fact, life's far from perfect. And we have lots of issues that we struggle with. And that's why I think this series is so helpful for us because as you ponder deeper about life, perfection is this completely unattainable goal. And it's worth saying in the church, uh, it is completely unattainable. If you do find the perfect church, I said this last week, please do not join it because you will only spoil it. Because none of us are perfect. And so it's so helpful to hear the Apostle Paul instruct the church 
because in many ways they're just like us, full of people who've got lots of problems, issues, needs, wrong ideas. And Paul helps us to understand, actually, this is what church is life in this world, full of imperfections and full of our own imperfections and sin and failing. So if you've got your scriptures there, please do open up. Uh, we're at page 1,142. We looked last week in the introduction about God's vision for his church. This week, we're going to see the message about the church and the gospel. What do we make sense of this message? What are we to do with it as a church? And let me just read to you from the opening verse, page 1142, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. Paul says these words, The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Now, as you read these opening verses in the opening chapter, there's numbers of key words that the Apostle Paul keeps repeating. And they're key because they're tapping into the culture and the issues that this group of imperfect Christians were struggling with to, if I can say, make sense of what it meant when you heard the gospel and responded, how did you then live as a Christian? How did you do life as a Christian? And one of the words, interestingly, is power. Uh, There's no doubt there's a fascination with ability and power. And it's a word as a minister that can jump off the page at you. And if I can be honest, what minister wouldn't want to see God powerfully at work in not just their life, but the lives of the people they minister in the church they oversee. And so as a minister, I read that phrase, for you who are being saved, the gospel is the power of God, and you get excited. And I know for many years, I have prayed that there might be revival in the places where I've ministered, and in this city of Sydney. I've prayed that God might powerfully be at work to bring a renewal of people's spiritual life through the gospel. That the Spirit would so work that as the gospel went out, we would see sleepy Christians woken up and brought alive in Christ. We'd see nominal Christians who kind of just were named Christians only, actually come to faith and be born again. We'd see complete outsiders who are antagonistic to the Christian faith, brought in and worshipping God and giving testimony to the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, how good would it be? I mean, really, how good would it be if there was a revival here in Manly? And we weren't just known as Surf City, which is what we're being broadcast at this week. But we're a place that a Jesus movement started. And on Twitter, it started to trend. Jesus at Manly or Manly on fire for Jesus. I mean, that'd be wonderful, wouldn't it? Now, you think about that. How good would it be? Now, I started to think about that myself and I thought, well, actually, why is it that I pray for revival? Why do I want gospel renewal to take place here at St. Matthew's? Why do I want us to be that church that is alive with Jesus' grace, love and truth? Is it because I long to see people saved from eternal judgment and the reality of hell? And I'd be so delighted to see people saved and following the Lord Jesus. Is it because I want us to be a church that really is alive with Jesus' love, grace and truth? Or if I'm honest, is it because I'm tired of being the minority in Manly? 
Is it because I'm tired of being treated politely as a minister, but dare I say it, not seriously by people? I mean, wouldn't it be good if Christianity was mainstream? Dare I say it, following Jesus became cool and in. I mean, wouldn't it be great if I had a large church that I could talk about with my peers? A friend of mine here in Manly who doesn't go to church wrote a blog about me. And he said I was the coolest minister that he'd met. That's kind of flattering. He also wrote in the next line, he had a very low bar, that actually I was the only minister he'd met. Great. <laughs> thought that doesn't matter. I ride a skateboard, I'm pretty cool. Well, if you ever wanted Christianity to be cool, the faith to be hip, for following Jesus to trend, for Christians to be admired, for you to be admired and respected for your faith and loved by your peers and colleagues, I want to say today's passage is actually a very rude shock. It's a very rude shock. So let's have a look at what it says. I've got three things. The first thing is this, uh, as we think about the church and the gospel, the church's message actually sounds foolish, is what Paul is saying to the Corinthians. And you see, the culture there loved fine rhetoric, loved to listen to talks and speeches that had a sense of excellence and beauty about them. And what Paul is saying is the message of the cross actually is foolishness to those who are perishing. Christianity in the church announces a message to the world about a dead and dying saviour. It speaks about a man who had an unjust trial. Even though he changed the lives of so many people for the good, he was completely innocent of all sin. Yet it's a message about his brutal, inglorious death where he was mocked, tortured and ridiculed by the people of the day. Before dying one of history's most painful and awful deaths. That's our message. And Paul says this message to the world actually sounds foolish. It's utter nonsense. Now, here's a classic example of someone who says it's foolish. Uh, Richard Dawkins, a noted atheist and an antagonist of the Christian faith. He says this about the message of the cross. He says, as you reflect on the Christian message of the cross, it's vicious it's sadomasochistic. It's repellent. If God wanted to forgive our sins, why not just forgive them without himself having tortured and executed in payment? You see what he's saying? Your message is completely ridiculous. You see, the gospel, the message of the Christian faith in the ears of the world is actually foolish. And the word foolish that Paul uses here for the message of the cross, it means to be silly. Something that you would just laugh off, it's an absurdity. It's a complete nonsense. And you see, in that culture of the Corinthians, the Greeks, with their love of rhetoric and fine-sounding arguments, thought this, absurd, silly nonsense. Now, if you want to see an example of that, have a look at Acts chapter 17 when Paul first preaches at Athens. He doesn't talk about the cross, he talks about the resurrection, the other half of the Christian message. And it says that many of them left, and the word that's describing them is they sneered. They turned their noses up, how ridiculous. And you see, in our current culture, a message about a dead Messiah, it really, to be honest, does not set people's hearts ablaze with joy and wonder. Uh, they're not about to break into how great is our God. 
I speak to many people about the Christian faith who don't come to church. And you often have this experience. They look at you and they're polite because they're kind of polite people and you've been polite to them as you've tried to explain. And, and there's just this blank look on their face as they think, what is he talking about? That just, just, just doesn't make sense. That's just stupid. And they politely let you go. I remember talking to one couple here in Manly who'd had the Christian faith explained over five weeks to them. And I went and saw them to follow up. And I went through and just explained the message of the cross. And the conversation drew to a close with they didn't think they'd come back. This was completely foolish. Have a look at verse 20. Paul is speaking to the Corinthians. Corinthians, where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Hasn't God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased, pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Now, did you get that? Paul says the message of the gospel sounds foolish because God actually chose for it to be that way. Uh, This is no accident. It's not like God was thinking, what message will I give to the world? Oh, I'm going to have this message about the cross. Oh, dear, they think it's ridiculous. What a surprise. No, Paul says, actually, for in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom didn't know him. Why? Because God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. God did not want a message that, humanly speaking, would be humanly impressive. And dare I say, allow us as preachers, you as preachers as you proclaim the gospel in your own way to your friends and family, to make us look impressive. God said, no, it will never be like that. I'm actually going to give you a foolish message that makes you sound foolish. Verse 22, Jews demand signs, Greeks look for wisdom. The Jews wanted signs. This this message about a dead Messiah made no sense. You see, they're looking for a Messiah who's going to come and conquer. Show me a sign that points to victory. Greeks, they wanted to have their fine philosophical arguments. And the word that's used about the Greeks is this message is a stumbling block. And the word stumbling block is where we get the word scandal from. Scandal on. And you see, scandal is something that causes an outrage. And that's what this message is. It's a scandal. And it was a scandal to the Jews. You see, the Jews, and I don't think we're too different at one level... They saw themselves as God's people, God's chosen people. They were the righteous ones in the world, the good people. They weren't like the pagans, the heathens, whatever you know, pejorative term you want to use about those who are not the right ones with God. Are you telling me, Paul, that me as a Jew is no better than the rest of the heathen? That is an outrage. 
It was a scandal. Because Paul says, actually, yes, you are no better. Yes, you need forgiveness just like them. Yes, you are sinful just like them. And you see, this is the scandal of the cross. It proclaims a message to every person in the world that you are no better than the worst of sinners. That there's a level playing field of all humanity who have all failed. It's a foolish message because it says the only way back to the living God is through a crucified Messiah. You see, the temptation, I think, for us today as we reflect on this, because no doubt the Corinthians struggle with this, is to want to make our message sound more palatable and more agreeable and to, if I can use this word, to make it sound a bit more sexy because it ain't that sexy. Talking to people about the fact that we've blown it with God and we've got sin and we've got idols in our life, that we take what is a good thing and make it an ultimate thing and that actually there's judgment coming and there's hell. Uh, I can think of better things to discuss across the coffee table with someone. And the history of the church is, even within the church, this message has sounded stupid and we've wanted to water it down. We've wanted to kind of adapt it and make it sound nicer. We've wanted to say, yes, Jesus will bring you happiness and wealth and life. And look, I'd love to go and say, come to Jesus and you'll be a happy person. How good would that be? Now, the irony is, when you do understand the message of the cross, it actually will transform you and bring joy an everlasting joy. So that's the first thing. The church's message actually sounds foolish. Second thing is this. It looks weak. It looks very weak. I remember as a very, very young youth leader, I'd been a Christian for three years. And I went to see my senior minister and said, look, we need to turn this youth ministry around. It's just kind of dead and going nowhere. And I was fired up and, you know, very excited. And he put me in charge. And I thought, why did he do that? That's not what I was asking for. So that's a ridiculous thing. I'm too young a Christian. Anyway, I had to do it. And uh, the first kind of time of running it, I'll never forget this. What I thought would make a difference is making the group kind of more attractive and having lots of really fun games and excitement and enthusiasm. And I didn't really kind of think too much about the message. And I just thought if we had great games and great activities, we'd kind of bring the people in. And, And I was very keen to see people saved and come to know the Lord Jesus. And I reflected and reflected with a couple of key people that pretty much after about half a year, I think we'd failed. The group had actually shrunk. And we had to rethink what we're doing. And I realized then and there, ministry is not about trying to be cool or trying to make your church attractive in the world sense. I think there is an attractiveness about the church as people display the grace of God and the way it heals and transforms lives. But look at what Paul says here in verse 26. Brothers, sisters, actually have a think about what you were like when you were called. Now, it's very pointed here. Because he's eyeballing them through the letter saying, guys, do you remember who you were when you became a Christian? 
And note what he says. Actually, guys, girls, not many of you are actually wise by human standards. Uh, you weren't the ones up on the uh, speaker rostrum giving the incredibly rhetorical speeches. Not many of you are influential. You didn't hold the positions of power in the city, did you? You didn't hold pretty much any power. Not many of noble birth. You weren't from the upper classes, were you? You're the working classes. That's who you were. Think about it, he's saying. Why is that? You see, Paul is saying the Christians of Corinth weren't the wise. They weren't the influential. They weren't the noble birth. Not many of you are like that. Now, if you are one of the beautiful people, the powerful people, the upper class people, the rich people, there's no problem coming to church. It's just saying not many were. And historically, this is true. The larger numbers of people in the world who follow Christ are the poor and the working class. It's worth saying we're somewhat of anomaly here in Manly. You think about just us as Anglicans. The Anglican Church is not the strength of the world here in Australia. It's not the strength of the world in Europe. In fact, the church there rots away. The American Episcopalian Church, our denominational brothers in America, continue to slide and decline in most places, not all, but most. You see, the great strength of Anglicanism is in Asia, South America and Africa. Not the first world, the second and third world. And the largest Anglican church in the world is in Nigeria. Now, we have 23 million people in Australia. They have, in 2011, had 18 million Anglican Christians in Nigeria. Now, it's probably gone up to 20 million by now in the last three years, four years. You see, look at what verse 27 and 28 says. There's no accident to this. God chose, it was his choice, the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. You could translate the people who are nobodies to nullify the people who think they are somebodies. You see, God actually planned it that way. And it's interesting to note this because one of the criticisms of the Christian faith is it looks weak. You know, I see these people who life has fallen apart and the bottom has dropped out and they turn to Jesus for help and they say, wow, I've been born again and my life's changed. You know, they only did that because they've got a weakness and a need and it's like a psychological crutch for them. Now, have you ever heard that? And they kind of dismiss the Christian faith because it looks weak. God's saying, I rejoice in that because that's the way I planned it. Another critique of Christians is we are people who need to have an imaginary friend who we can talk to in times of weakness. Have you heard that one? It's amazing how when hardship or sickness or suffering strikes, how strong people really are without God. Christians are just the ones who've actually worked out the reality that all of us are weak. You see, what's the bottom line issue here? Why is the message like this, that it looks weak, sounds foolish? Because you see, the heart of our problem with God 
is our pride. We think we know more than God. We think we're better. We think we're smarter. We think we're stronger. And we actually don't think we need God. And it's only those who are weak who realize how needy they really are. You see, we are not wise in God's eyes. We're not strong. And you see, the foolishness and the stupidity that Paul is talking about here actually has nothing to do with your intellectual IQ or your emotional IQ. It's all about your spiritual IQ. How you view yourself in relation to the living God and see your need of him and forgiveness under him. And so to undercut that way of thought that dominates our world, he sent a crucified Messiah, a defeated king, to die on a cross for us. And I want to say the temptation with the message sounding so foolish to the world and looking so weak is that we think what we really need to do is kind of use our marketing skills and jazz up church and make it look more attractive. I mean, how wonderful would it be to have this lady, Bambi, on the door at welcoming? Okay? And we get some supermodels out there welcoming. I mean, that'd be great, wouldn't it? It'd bring the guys in. And everyone who got up on the platform just looked awesome. We couldn't have anyone who had any weight issues or glasses or, you know, heaven forbid, couldn't dress well. You can't do that in church, can you? Because you've got to look good. Friends, this is a weak message. In the world's eyes, we look weak, it sounds foolish, and if that's a problem for you, honestly, get over it. The issue is yours and your pride. It really is. The issue is mine. Because I think our natural temptation is we want to look better in the eyes of the world. Why? Because we want to be liked by them. It's a very dangerous cocktail. The cross is ugly and weak. And the church is not full of beautiful people. In fact, it's the opposite. We're a motley crew. And you know the wonderful thing? I wouldn't have it any other way. I reckon there's be something significant happening here at St. Matthew's when the people who are all coming at Soup Kitchen are all here on a Sunday with us. And no one bats an eyelid. Have a think about that. We don't bat an eyelid that the homeless and the rich sit side by side in church together. But Paul has one more thing to say to us, which is very important. Though the message may look foolish, it may look weak, it actually is powerful. It actually has incredible power. Go back to verse 18. See, the message of the cross is foolishness to who? Those who are perishing. Those who think they're wise in their own eyes. Those who are proud. Those who are rich. Dare I say, those who have the most to lose. And you see, that's why 
the rich, the powerful, the intelligent typically don't come to Christ. Because when you come to Christ, you've got to lay it all down at the cross, everything, and give it to Jesus. And when you've got a lot in the world's eyes, it's really hard to lay it all down at the foot of the cross. But when you take that step and you realize that at the cross, you actually find a God who loves you and will restore you with him, you realize, no, this is not foolish. This is the power of God. And about five times in this opening chapter, the reading we had today, the word power is used. And it's used in connection with the gospel message of the cross. Because in God's eyes, this message, though foolish in the world and though weak and despised, is actually where his power resides. And you can see why in verses 30 and 31. Have a look. And I've highlighted a couple of key words. It's because of him, that's God, that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. He's the way we now start to understand life through Christ, through the cross of his son. You see, he is our righteousness, our holiness and redemption. Now, look at those words I've got in bold. He has become for us. You see, we actually have nothing we can bring to God. We have to stand at the foot of the cross with empty hands and go, actually, I have nothing that merits my favor with you. And Christ at the cross becomes something for us. He becomes these three things. Now, there's much more, but these are three gems of gold. Um, Sorry to mix the metaphor. He becomes our righteousness. He becomes our goodness before God. He becomes our faithfulness before God when we are unfaithful. He becomes our purity. You see, he becomes our holiness. We are impure, but he is holy and pure. And he becomes our redemption because he's paid the price for our sin. You see, he gives you his goodness. He gives you his purity. And he pays the price for our sin and takes it away and nails it to a cross so that we're forgiven. And you see, this is the power of the cross you find at the cross when you come there in all humility and you've laid your pride down, you find a God who loves you in the most profound way. You find a God who will accept you in spite of all that you may have done. And you see, there are no nobodies at the foot of the cross. There are only people who are loved and welcomed into the family. And they meet a God who loves them. When I looked at that youth group and what we were doing, we realized we needed to get back to reading the Bible and preaching the gospel. And we stopped trying to be cool and we started to unpack what the scripture said about Jesus. And it's where I met Kath. And over the next two and a half years, uh, we saw kids come to Christ. I've seen kids go out in ministry. We saw the group double in size as we gave up trying to impress from a worldly point of view and started to preach the powerful message of the, the cross. And it's a message which is incredibly powerful. It has the message to silence people and to make people rejoice. 
And as we finish, I just want us to be quiet for a moment and be silent. And I want to ask you the question, what makes you silent and what makes you rejoice? When have you been silenced recently? I was silenced last weekend. I was at the Asian Cup final. And I was up in the grandstand with 75, 80,000 people. And all of a sudden, this noise started to well up. It was the 90-minute mark, and we saw that click over on the clock, and three minutes of injury time was announced. And about 30 seconds in, we kind of realised we were going to win. Well, we thought we were going to win. And the stadium erupted in singing. Ole, 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 ole. And we sang and sang for a minute. And there's joy. And I'm up kind of underneath the rafters and it's echoing and vibrating and it's like being in a rock concert and we're happy and we're smiling. And then Song Lee, number seven from Bayer Leverkusen, scored that goal. And I've never seen a place silent so quickly. Except for 5,000 crazy South Koreans who are going nuts <laughs> behind the goal. And the full-time whistle blew. And there's just silence in the stadium. It was quite a moment, and you thought, could they come back? We get to the 15-minute mark of extra time. Half-time's about to blow, and if you know what happens, Tommy Urich made his baseline run, crossed it in, and James Troisi put it in the back of the net. Stadium went crazy again! Full-time whistle blows 15 minutes later, and we're rejoicing. Friends, when you hear the gospel and the message of the cross, silence is required, and rejoicing begins. I want you to look at what verses 30 and 31 say. Have a look at it. It says, Because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who's become our wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it's written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Silence is required because we have nothing to boast about. Nothing. All that we have comes from his hand. All our abilities, all our wealth, all our status, all our position, all our power, it all comes from him. As you stand at the foot of the cross, you realize, actually, I have nothing that I can boast about. And we need to be quiet at the foot of the cross and just sit there and realize that. But friends, we don't just sit there and be quiet. We actually stand up and we rejoice. And we boast in the Lord. And you see, that's what revival is about and gospel renewal taking place in people's hearts as they take hold of the message of the cross and they realize the wonder and the joy and the power of it. That you now know God, he lives in you by his spirit and you are alive in him. I mean, how good is that? And friends, I pray that we might see revival in this town where the church is filled and the suburb is filled with people who are on fire for Jesus, who boast in the Lord because you see that is the power of this foolish, weak message. It is the power to save. Let us pray.
Friends, what a joy, but what a sense of humility it is to be here today. May we never boast. May our mouths be stopped. May there be silence as we ponder our sin, as we reflect on the cross and the gruesome death on our behalf. But Lord, fill our hearts with all joy and peace as we see him dying for us, as we see the empty tomb, as we see him risen from the grave, as we see the victory, Lord. May we boast in you, in Jesus' name. Amen.